We stand for God's words. You can sit for mine. While you guys are standing up, too, you might want to give a little stretch. Get ready, because today's passage is quite long. In fact, I'm going to give you the same advice I give at every wedding that I perform to the bridesmaids and groomsmen. Don't lock your knees, or you might just topple over. All right, here we go, starting in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and he reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to them, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? But now, as for what's inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean to you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without even knowing it. Jesus is not pulling any punches here today. This next part actually made me laugh out loud when I read it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. A.K., you're hurting my feelings, Jesus. And Jesus replied, Oh, you want it? Come and get some. And the experts in the law, Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I'll send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that's been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and beseech him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Meanwhile, when, and I love this part, Jesus and the Pharisees have spilled outside the house and the arguments continued and it kind of reminds me of in middle school when someone yells out, fight! Everyone just crowds around and stumbles all over each other. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, they were trampling on one another. I love it. These people are just stumbling all over the place to see who's going to win, the Pharisees or Jesus. And Jesus looked to his disciples and he began to speak to them first, saying, Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. 
But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogue, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what to say. You guys can grab a seat. I don't think we lost anybody. That's good. So here's the setting. Jesus has been invited to a dinner at the Pharisee's house. And like, like we mentioned a few weeks ago when we preached on a similar passage, this means more than just, you look hungry, let me feed you. This was an invitation into relationship. If I'm going to cook for you, clean for you, and prepare for you, I see some kind of potential relationship coming out of this. And so here, Jesus gets invited to this unlikely dinner at the Pharisee's house. And just like the last time, things go south very quickly. In fact, this one gets bad before the food is even served. Everyone walks in the room and they head over to the bowl and they begin to wash their hands. And Jesus, a man after my own heart, he walks in the room and he goes straight for the hummus. (laughs) And I see two options on why this happened. The first one is, was Jesus just grubby? He didn't wash his hands. He didn't care about it. I don't like that one. It doesn't seem like Jesus was the smelly man of the first century. So I think there's got to be another one. The second one is Jesus knew what was customary. He knew the plans. He knew that he was supposed to wash his hands and go through the ceremonial portion before dinner. But he's making a deliberate point. He's wanting to expose something in the Pharisee's heart. And so he's beginning to flesh it out right there. And so what happens is the Pharisees are appalled. They're absolutely disgusted by what just took place and why. The first time I read this, I thought it was just about dirt and grime and germs. Like when you're at a party and someone double dips the chip. All the Seinfeld fans in the room know exactly how big a deal that can be. And believe me, I know too. It's early in the sermon, but I want to get into a little story time with Brandon. It's a tale of a small lad. We'll call him elementary school Brandon. In elementary school, Brandon was raised with a nurse for a mother. And she ingrained in him over and over again, you never handle food with dirty hands. It's just never to be done. And I still recall the moment at Awana when a kid, we'll call him Evil Ronnie. (laughs) And when Evil Ronnie discovered elementary school Brandon's weakness, and he realized that if he went over to the snack, And if he touched the entire snack, Brandon wouldn't eat it. And so week after week, the tray would come, and we'd have a lesson, and we'd have games. And at some point, evil Ronnie would sneak over there, and he would begin to poke his grubby little paws in all the jello jigglers. (laughs) And Brandon would gasp, and then sadly watch him eat them all. And this happened week after week. The struggle is real, guys. And eventually, I was venting, I mean, elementary school Brandon, this is a hypothetical, no, it really did happen, was venting to his mom, and he was like, I don't want to go to Awana, there's this kid Ronnie, and he touches all the snacks, and I learned a very valuable lesson, moms are stronger than bullies, and so my mom walked in, and she sat evil Ronnie down, and he kind of slunk in his chair, and she said, you will not touch, let me tell you about germs, I'm a nurse. And she gave him the whole spiel. And the next week, elementary school Brandon kind of strutted in to Awana. And the whole time during the lesson, the whole time during the activity, the snack tray sat untouched until it was time to eat them. 
And evil Ronnie was tasked with grabbing that tray. And this is how he got his name because I learned a very important lesson. Mom can't be around all the time. And evil Ronnie grabbed that tray and right as he was setting it down in front of me, he picked it back up and he licked it from top to bottom. Is that what's going on here in this passage? Is Jesus evil Ronnieing the Pharisees? Putting his grubby hands in the, the hummus. No. This isn't about germs and grime and physical cleanliness. This is about spiritual cleanliness. And this is what I love when you can tell that Jesus is just kind of going off the cuff because he looks around the dinner and he just like grabs a cup. And he's like, you Pharisees, you're like this cup. You clean the outside of it, but the inside's filthy. And he tells them exactly what's in their cup. Look at verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And if you look back at verse 33, I wish that we had time to read it all. It talks all about having bad eyes and good eyes. It's the portion right before this. And this is why I love on Tuesday mornings, I actually get a chance to study these passages. Each week the preaching team gets together, and I love studying with people who are smarter than me. Because we read this thing, and a guy's just like, oh, that's a Hebrew idiom. Good eyes mean generous eyes. Bad eyes mean stingy eyes. And sure enough, you look at the footnotes in your Bible, it should say that that's what this is talking about. So Jesus, what's he saying? He's saying, you Pharisees, you look good on the outside. You clean the cup, it gets all sparkly clean, it looks great. But inside, you're full of greed. You're full of wickedness. And how are these Pharisees greedy? Look at verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees. Curse you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. They neglect justice. You don't care about the oppressed. But before we're too hard on the Pharisees, look at how that verse started in 42. I've met some avid tithers in my day, but none that actually get into their garden herbs and carve out a tenth. I feel like that's the definition of OCD tithing, like rummaging through your rosemary to get out 10% to bring to church. But this is actually key, because these guys had a heart for God's laws. They realized something that I think we forget. They didn't go to Trader Joe's and buy these spices. Instead, what they did was they grew them in their garden. And they recognize who, get, who owns the dirt. Who sends the rain that makes it grow? Whose seed was it? It was God. And so like any good sharecropper, the Pharisees realize you have to pay the owner of the land that you farm. The Pharisees are zealous for God's commands. Jesus just says you forget the most important ones, though. Verse 42, you should have done the latter without neglecting the former either. You should clean the outside of the cup. It's good. But you need to clean the inside too. The Pharisees were hardy tithers, but they missed the most important part. They overlooked justice in their community. And I think if we're honest here today, there's a little bit of Pharisee inside each one of us. We watch the news. We're bombarded with stories of ISIS, human trafficking, the massacre in Kenya. And what do we do? At best, we educate ourselves on what's going on. We keep abreast of the situation, but it often stops there. We prepared 
ourselves for water cooler chats and to discuss the issue, but we're uninvolved with those who are actually afflicted. Now, I wonder, Crossroads, do we even pray for those affected? We have a God who is committed to justice, a God who's committed to the plight of the oppressed. You might be saying, well, that's global. I live here in Grand Rapids. What am I supposed to do about Iraq and Syria and things going on there? All I can say is there are people making a difference. But I'll tell you this too. Michigan is full of people who need champions, full of people who are oppressed, full of people who are in need and need someone to come alongside them. I had an example, but in the first service, I felt the same thing. I just, I don't even need to give it. We heard from food share today. There are people in our city starving that can't put food on the table. What are we doing about it? What do we drive by every single day? Homelessness, racial oppression, hunger, sexual abuse, domestic violence, the list goes on and on. Crossroads, are we concerned about the injustices in our world, in our neighborhood? Sometimes I think we slip into this thought that's just like the Pharisees that says, if I go to church, if I give a tent, if I avoid the big overt sins, then I'm all right. I'm doing good. And God says this, verse 41, be generous to the poor and all will be clean for you. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. And I'm not trying to be harsh with us here, but Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And this one landed for me this week. It hit me square in the gut. Where's my focus? Am I concerned about the things that God is most concerned about? Are you concerned about the things that God is most concerned about? Or are we consumed with the things our own hearts want? Are we so worried about where we're going to eat after church on Sunday morning that we forget entirely that there are people who can't afford to eat at all? All right, take a little breath with me because this isn't the only punch that Jesus throws against the Pharisees. And at this point, I can only guess what time it is, so we need to speed up a little bit. Personally, I blame evil Ronnie for slowing us down. (laughs) Stole my snack, and now you're stealing the minutes for my sermon, Ronnie. Look at verse 42 again. Here we see another glimpse into the Pharisees' cup. They neglect justice. But Jesus says they neglected something even bigger. But you neglect justice, but you also neglect the love of God. I say bigger because what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your being. That command, though, is very hard to quantify. It's hard to measure if you're actually doing it or not. And here's the scary thing. It's possible to do an awful lot of things that look like you're fulfilling this command. Things that cause others to notice. Things that cause others to praise how dedicated to God you are, and you can still be very far from actually loving him. And Jesus says this is reality for the Pharisees in this passage. In fact, they've come to love the praise and benefits of looking holy more than actually being holy to, pray, to please God. Look at verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, Because you love the most important seats in the synagogue. And you love the respectful greetings in the marketplace. He says, you don't love God. You love the benefits and the status that religion gives you. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. 
That's not exactly an insult we use today, so let me explain what unmarked graves is about. You see, everyone there knew what he was talking about. It comes from the Torah. comes from Numbers 19. Numbers 19, 16 says this, Anyone out in the open who touches someone who's been killed with a sword, or someone who's died a natural death, or anyone who touches a human bone or grave will be unclean for seven days. To touch anything dead or to touch a gravestone made you unclean ceremonially, spiritually. Remember, this isn't about physical cleanliness. This is why every year all over Israel in the month of Adar, the month before Passover, people, workers, would go all around all the different grave sites and they'd take lime and they would whitewash all of the grave sites. And they'd do this because over the course of the year, rain and mud would wash that lime away and it'd be hard to tell that there was a grave site there. And they wanted to make certain that people traveling for Passover could see the graves and avoid them. And now Jesus says, you Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. You're a trap for people. People follow your teaching. People respect you. People look to you, but you're leading them to become unclean. They respect you. They give you the seats of honor, but it's all based on impurities because inside you're full of greed and wickedness and death. The Pharisees, they loved, they craved people's recognition. And Jesus is saying, you don't love God. You love the respect you get for looking like you love God. You serve in order to receive. You give in order to get. Charles Spurgeon tells a story that stuck with me for years on this exact heart condition. It's a story of a farmer. And he comes and he appears before the king and this farmer just falls on his knees and he's just like, oh king, oh king, you are my king and you are such a good king. And he says, I'm a carrot farmer. My entire life I've grown carrots and I've never grown a carrot like this one. It's the most beautiful, magnificent carrot that I've ever seen, and I want you to have it just because you're such a good king, and I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And the king was moved by this, and he looked down at the man, and he said, take all this land, farm it as your own, grow carrots, because you have honored me so much today. And there was a nobleman for the king who looked at it, and he said, boy, if this guy gets all that land for a carrot, imagine what I'll get for a horse. And so the next day, he walked into court, and he stood before the king, and he fell on his knees, and he said, oh, king, oh, king, you are such a king. You are my king, and you're a great king. I'm a horse breeder, and I've never bred a stallion like this one, and I want you to have it just because you're such a good king. And the king looked at the man, and he said, thank you. And he walked away, and as he was walking away, he looked back at that horse breeder, and he said, you want to know why I didn't give you anything? And the horse breeder kind of looked up a little bit. And he said, you see, that man gave me a carrot. But you have given yourself a horse. And here's the scary thing. Many people use religion to get rather than to give. Secretly thinking that through our own piety, through our own good deeds and good works, we can manipulate God into blessing us and other people into praising us. And listen, I want to tell you, God is not impressed with your good deeds. In your piety. If he was, Jesus wouldn't have had to come to die. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not even one. But if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us still operate like this spiritually? Ask yourself, do I follow God's commands because I genuinely love him and I want to respond in worship? 
Or am I just trying to give myself a horse? I want the recognition from my peers. I want the reward for my service. You see, religion says I can manipulate God into blessing me. But God sent Jesus to destroy that notion once and for all. And it's only when that thought captivates us that whether we have a carrot or a horse or nothing in our hands at all, that he still grants us forgiveness and grace and acceptance and adoption and reconciliation with our king. When we grasp that, when our heart begins to really take that in, it frees us to serve God, not to manipulate, not to try to get a blessing, not to give to get, but instead in worship. Be honest in your relationship with God today. Who are you? Are you the farmer or the horse breeder? Jesus says this, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Okay, I said we needed to speed up earlier. We need to be in a dead sprint right now. So I wish that I could preach verse 45 to 52, but bottom line, I can't, but I'm stubborn and I can't just let it go. So I'm going to give you something that I've deemed cliff note preaching. You guys ready for this? Cliff note preaching. Verse 45, this is how it goes. The experts in the laws are offended and they come crying to Jesus. Verse 46, Jesus says, I'll give you something to cry about. You weigh people down with all kinds of rules and burdens, but you don't lift a finger to help them. You're just like the Pharisees, loving respect and recognition that comes from your rules, but you do nothing to actually help the people. Verse 47 to 51, he says, You build tombs to honor the prophets, but your ancestors killed those prophets. You have the same mentality. In fact, these people are going to kill the Messiah upcoming. And so he holds this generation accountable. Verse 52, you don't get it guys, and you hinder other people from actually getting it. And then chapter 12 starts off, and Jesus talks to the disciples, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It creeps in, and it affects everything. But don't worry, God sees the inside of the cup. The things that are unseen, he knows them, and they're not going to be unseen forever. They'll be disclosed. And now as we get to verse 4, I want to slow back down, because it's talking about fear. In the next few chapters, the next few sermons here at Crossroads, we're going to be talking about this issue, and this really lays the groundwork for it. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Pause. I think I should probably talk about that verse for a second. It's a verse that's caused a lot of fear, the unpardonable sin. And Luke talks about it here. Matthew talks about it in chapter 12 of his gospel. Mark in chapter 3 of his. Uh, and I know that this has bothered people. And let me just say, every time I read this verse, I'm taken back to high school at a football game where I saw a kid who was just so angry he was hurt and he was upset about something and he was blaming God and he was just furious. And as I talked to this kid and I tried to 
speak to him a little bit. At one point, he just got so angry with God that he raised both hands in the air and raised up both fingers, and he just shouted out at the top of his lungs, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And my heart still hurts for that kid. I don't know what's become of him. I haven't seen him since high school. But I can tell you this, that's not exactly what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about something you do in an angry moment or some thought that comes flooding through your mind, whether intentional or unintentional. What this is talking about is a deliberate rejection of the Spirit's work in your life and in the world. In fact, the context in Luke, or the context in Matthew and the context in Mark is what we read two weeks ago. It's where the Pharisees see the Spirit working in the world and they say, no, that's not God's Spirit, that's Satan. That, he says, is a danger of hardening your heart and ultimately so rejecting the Holy Spirit that you can't hear from him anymore and you have so utterly gone away that God has just kind of released you. There's a lot more that we could say on this, but I'll just say this. If you're a person who's sitting there who lives in fear of like, maybe I've committed this and I hope that I haven't committed this sin, that's a really good sign that you haven't. Because the person who's blasphemed the Holy Spirit is so hard in their heart that they really wouldn't care whether they'd done it or not. So that verse touched on, I want to give us a little bit more on something that's going to be important the next couple of weeks. If you go back to verse 4, in verses 4 through 7, Jesus says, fear or afraid five times. And I don't think that there's anything more applicable for us in a world that's full of anxiety and depression and suicide and despair at epic proportions. Some of this is due to biological imbalances, some of it to childhood trauma and different things. There's a host of different factors, and I don't want to try to reduce it, but I will say that this is stepping into a very important factor as well. Fear, specifically fear of man. And what is fear of man? Let me give you guys a couple questions to determine if you wrestle with fear of man. These, bo- these questions are adapted from a counselor that I really enjoy. His name is Ed Welch. And Ed Welch wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. He's also written books on fear, just in general, and on shame and depression. He's got a ton of stuff. But let me give you a couple of these questions. Please answer them in your heart honestly as we go. Do you expect a lot from people? Are you overcommitted? Find it hard to say no, even when wisdom says that you should. Find yourself craving compliments. You ever fish for compliments? Maybe you even do that thing where you throw out something derogatory about yourself and just hope that people will correct it. Are you ever afraid you might be exposed as an imposter? Do you spend your whole life just managing your reputation and what other people think of you? You second-guess a lot of decisions because you're worried what people might think of the one that you made. Are you overly concerned with how you look, how much you weigh, or how you're dressed? Do you need people to notice you? Do you ever make excuses for your mistakes or shift blame because you can't take the thought of failing before other people? Do you show favoritism to those who are a little higher on the economic or work ladder? Do you get easily embarrassed? 
You get nervous to talk in front of a group of people, whether large or small, and you could say, well, I'm just shy, or well, I'm really humble, and I don't want the spotlight, but deep down you know it's because you're afraid people will reject you. You ever compare yourself to others? Feel really good when you come out the winner? Feel really low when you come out the loser? What goes through your head when you're worshiping? Are you wondering what other people are thinking of you? These are just a couple questions, but if that's you today, what do we do about it? What do we do about a fear of man? That's really the question of our world today, the question that people have been wrestling the last several decades with, particularly counselors. And one of the big solutions has been positive self-esteem. You don't, you know what? You just say how much you're worth to yourself. Don't let anyone else define you. You say it. You tell yourself how valuable you are. Don't give the power to other people. And Americans have become obsessed with this idea. It's in almost every single self-help book. It's in the curriculum at schools. That's why there's no loser at little elementary school games because no one can win and lose that might hurt their self-esteem, right? It's in the music that we listen to. The song's on the radio. And here's my question. Is it working? Thankfully, there's been people who have asked this question before, too. There's a group in Canada that did a study. And they divided uh, the participants into three groups. So group one, group two, group three. Group one, you guys were given cards. And these cards had all kinds of self-affirming, you are valuable, you are important type statements on them. And they said, I want you to read these cards and meditate on them 20 minutes a day internalize what they say. Believe it in your heart. Really take it in. Group two, you guys get the same cards. In 20 minutes a day, I want you to take those cards and study them, but ask this question. Is this true of me? Group three, you guys do nothing. Six months later, they came back. You're the control group. And they looked at this first group and they said, does this work? Where are you at? And of the people who started off with low self-esteem, six months later, after spending 20 minutes a day with these cards, where do you think they were? Worse. It completely backfired for the people who needed it the most. The only conclusion that they could come up with was maybe these cards work for people who already have good self-esteem, but people who need it the most, it's detrimental. And why? There's a lot of theories on why. The one that I really like is a British psychologist. His name is Glenn Harrison. And he speculates. He just says, it's really hard to believe your own propaganda. It's really hard to believe the messages that you're sending to yourself that are just propaganda. And thankfully, Jesus gives us a better way. Such a better way. You see, the self-esteem movement got it partially right. Other people don't define you. Other people do not determine how valuable you are. The problem is they just traded one slave master for another. Because you'll never live up to your own self-expectations either. They'll crush you. Our value doesn't depend on what others think, but it also doesn't depend on what we think. Your value doesn't depend on what other people say about you, but it also doesn't depend on what you say about you. It depends on what he says about you, what your creator 
says about you. And here Jesus gives us two ways to overcome fear. Look back at verse 4. Two ways to overcome fear of man and fear in general. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. One way to overcome fear is a fear of something greater. If I'm afraid of mice, and one walks into my bedroom, I might jump up on my bed, maybe even start shrieking a little bit. Quite a word picture, right? But if while I'm up there on the bed, my window breaks and in stumbles a very angry bear, do I care about the mouse anymore? (laughs) Not even a little. That fear is erased because there's a much larger, more ominous threat that's out there. And Jesus is saying, when you're tempted to focus on people and what they might say about you, what they might do to you. Keep something else in mind. People's power is limited, but God's power is infinite. When the bear shows up, any petty fear is just washed away and it's put into its proper perspective. So that's the first cure for fear. Take your eyes off of others and lift them up to him. And if it stopped there, that'd be enough, a scary enough, but it would be enough. But this is one of the most beautiful like concoctions and mixtures in all of Scripture. It's like, fear God, he's terrifying, and then this next verse comes up. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And it seems like it doesn't fit, but hang on one second. Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. We have a God who cares for even the insignificant. Indeed, Jesus goes on, the very hairs on your head are numbered. For some of us, that number is large. For others, well, we don't need to compare. (laughs) Jesus is saying, God has not forgotten about you. He knows you. Even the seemingly insignificant detail of how many hairs are on your head, he's aware of it. He knows you. He loves you. And then he says, don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. You have value to the king. You have value because your creator says that you do. First John says it this way. Perfect love casts out fear. It can't stand in front of it. So how do you defeat fear in your life once and for all? The gospel. The source of perfect love. You have a God who knows you, even the seemingly insignificant details. And he knows every thought you've ever had every wicked even thought or action that you've ever done, verse 3 says, nothing's hidden. The thing's done in the dark. He's well aware of them. They'll be concealed. And that's terrifying. But here's the part that drives out fear. While we were still sinners, while we're still at our worst, Christ Jesus died for us. We didn't have to clean up the cup or the outside. We didn't have to try to make ourselves look good and fake him or manipulate him into coming. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He knows us and he loves us. No more game playing. No more looking for appearances. No more shining the outside of the cup. No more fear. In fact, you don't even have, you don't, at the end, you don't even get your cup cleaned. Your cup is put aside. You get Jesus' cup. God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. 
In Christ, you've been made pure, spotlessly clean, inside and out. There's no more managing sin. It's defeated. That's the gospel that sets you and I free. And how does Jesus do it? He does it by becoming the opposite of every person that we just read about in this passage. He's the anti-Pharisee. The Pharisees ignored the inside, but they focused all on the outside. Jesus' inside is perfect and spotless and clean, and he lets the external, the outside, get smashed for us. The Pharisees ignored the oppressed. Jesus died to free us from the oppression of sin, death, and the devil. The Pharisees, they loved the most important seats and the respectful greetings they got. And Jesus took the cursed seat of the cross and the mocking and the jeering. The Pharisees were like unmarked graves, leading other people to become unclean. Jesus goes into the graves so that we might all be made clean. Do you see how your Savior is better than religion? Better than trying to clean your own cup? Why deep belief in Him sets us free from fear? Let me give you one more. The teachers of the law, it says in verse 46, lay such heavy burdens on the people that they can hardly bear them, and yet they won't lift a finger to help them. And then Jesus steps in and he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He doesn't just lift a finger, he lifts his very self to help us. There is truly no one like our God. And when you begin to meditate on that every day, instead of some silly card that says how great you are, when you begin to meditate on how great he is and what he's done for us and that he knows your name and that he knows how many hairs are on your head and that he loves you, it sets you free. Free from fear. Free from shame. Free from guilt. Let's pray. God, you are the God who knows our name. And you are the God who gave yourself to set us free from sin and to reconcile yourself to us. I pray that we'd stop any kind of game playing, God. That we would stand before you, not trying to give to get, but giving because you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration, everything that we have. God, I pray that we would care for the oppressed because we would see that we were oppressed and released and set free by you first. God, please lift our gaze off of others and put it squarely onto you. We need you and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious and holy name.